0: Just briefly, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you again for this session that we have, we pray your blessings on it. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in just two passages of Scripture, one very briefly to begin with, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and then we'll be in Acts chapter 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there's a verse in verse 8, and we don't really get the full effect in English as we would get in the Greek text. I mentioned last night that my mother graduated from high school, my dad graduated from high school, but my mother was always the one uh, that I would use, where, where I would study, and I never wanted to make people feel bad that they didn't know how to, how to read Greek, and what I would try to do is to explain some of the treasures that I had run across, and certainly not all of them, but I would use her for my sounding board in the sense, and even today. Is there something that can help explain God's word that just doesn't over um, just overload the mind? And so, Second Corinthians chapter four, verse eight, where Paul says, "I am perplexed, but not despairing." In English, there's no connection. In Greek, there's a big connection. And Greek, the word is from three words. I'll leave out. Is it better if I leave out the Greek words? Yeah, Okay, you like that, huh? Okay. The Greek word is from, uh, it's a combination of three different words that means no way out. That's what perplexity is. If you are perplexed about something, you have no way out of this perplexity. No path, no road to go on. I'm, trying, I'm thinking in Greek, I'm trying to put this in English. And so the word does perplex, but not despairing. The word despairing in the Greek, is an intensified form of the same word for perplexed. So perplexed, there would be no way out. And for despairing, it would be capital letters straight across there, no way out. I mean, some of us have gone through times of perplexity, and I have gone through times of despairing, and you probably have as well. And if you live long enough, you probably will. I have no idea when I come into situations I don't look for, I don't I don't headhunt in the sense of identifying anything, trying to make this pertinent. It's just where we live. <coughs> Excuse me, it's just part of living in a cursed world, part of the effects of the fall. And so I figured if Paul was perplexed and not despairing, I actually find that encouraging. Because after all, you would think he probably wouldn't be just because he'd had such a tight walk with the Lord. But Acts chapter 16 is probably one of the best examples where the Apostle Paul went from being perplexed but not despairing. So in Acts chapter 16, for those who will be reading the cup and the glory or are reading it, this will be chapter 3 called The Road. And in my own life, this one answered the question, what do you do when God closes doors unexpectedly? What do you do when you're walking with him? Then all of a sudden, it just stops. And I thought everything that happened to me was unique, and actually it was not. There's Bible references galore throughout. So here's a case where the Apostle Paul, in all likelihood, was perplexed and not despairing. In Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 5, it says, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. This is the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, I mean, verse 5 is really an amazing verse. Anyone in the ministry would love to have verse 5 as a part of their ministry, wouldn't you? I mean, that's that's quite the accomplishment of God, and you know it's visible fruit, I and mean, you know that God's the one that's doing this. So, not only is the church being edified in the sense of being built up doctrinally and maturing, but God's also adding people, adding people, adding people. And the word daily is important. Not one day did they do ministry where they didn't see God's effect. Betsy and I were on vacation with a missionary from a, a forbidden country. And what was it, About Ten years? You think it's more than that? I th- about 12 years or so, somewhere before he saw his first convert that's a very mature missionary and it's a very mature mission board because for 12 years he worked in this Muslim country before he saw his first person come to Christ. in Act 16:5 Paul everything that he does God blesses everything that he's involved with ministry-wise God is the one that's giving the increase and then look what takes place with no kind of explanation, no kind of warning it just shifts. And all of a sudden, everything they try to do stops. Or better still, they are stopped. They are stopped from doing this. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That sounds kind of strange theology to us, that God would actually forbid them from speaking to someone. Doesn't Doesn't God want people to hear the word? And so they all of a sudden they try to go here, and God repeatedly stops them. And then look at verse 7. And they had gone down to Mysia, and they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the spirit of the Lord Jesus did not permit them. So they tried to go this way, and God stopped them. So they went in the opposite direction. They tried to go here, and God stopped them and repeatedly stopped them. And then in verse 8, and passing by Mysia. They came down to Troas, and then after Troas, verses 9 and following, and a vision appeared to Paul at night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to us, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Then in verse 10, and when we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, if you are of European descent, this is your chapter, because this is the first time that the gospel goes to Europe, and that's important. And if you go and look a little bit more, you'll see that this is where the church at Philippi was founded. If you have ever been encouraged by anything written in the book of Philippians, then this is the chapter of the origin of that, and the church at Philippi will be born shortly thereafter. And so what we don't realize a lot of times is that the distance between where God started closing doors for the Apostle Paul to when he gave the revelation that they were supposed to go to this particular place was basically a distance of 500 miles, if you want to put it in in United States terms, is basically the distance from Washington, D.C. to Atlanta, that's how far they walked before God gave them the answer, come over here and help us. And that's a long, long way to go. And there's some pretty high mountains over in that section. Troas is actually a pretty good-sized city. It had a, 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 a theater there. I got to go on a Greece and Turkey study tour trip four different times. And the last time that I went, we stopped at Troas. We hadn't stopped there before. And they had a, a beach volleyball set up. And I don't think it was the original. I think it had been replaced (laughs) by this time. And we were on the road to Troas, driving up, because it's still using the same road. And that's, that's, again, when the Cup and the Glory came out. I was in Turkey on that particular road, on the literal road to Troas going up there. I thought that was very appropriate. Not a lot of people on the bus knew about the significance of what it was that that, uh, we had done or, or what was going on there. But there's also a kind of spiritual road to Troas as well. Because Troas was a literal place. But Troas is where God finally gave the direction of what it was that Paul was supposed to do. Until then, Paul didn't have a clue what it was. I would put it this way. The Apostle Paul was perplexed, but not despairing. This is... Well, there are very practical things we can learn from this. And you don't, you're not, we're not in Turkey, and we're not on the physical road to Troas. But let's, let's put it this way. What is it that we do, or what should we do, when we're in a situation where all of a sudden God just closes doors repeatedly, one after another? And you may very well, you may be bringing stuff here today, bringing stuff to the Lord where you're despairing, where there's a situation in your life that's just beyond hope, so to speak. Not talking about grief, necessarily, but just talking about the perplexity. And for us, it was just, when we were in the midst of this, we didn't think it was ever going to end. We kind of celebrated the end of years being over, and uh, so... With this, looking at the Apostle Paul's life, there are actually six different things. There's a checklist we can go down. What do you do when God starts closing doors that previously have not been closed? And so just some brief items with this, but I think they're very practical. And just to begin with with us, because, again, there's a checklist. I always ask people this. Number one, the Apostle Paul was walking in obedience when God told him no. And that's important. The Apostle Paul was walking in obedience when God told him no. And so if the Apostle Paul was living in sin, that's a different matter. And Paul was not. It's quite evident from the text he was not living in sin. So in my own life, before asking God why or asking God to help, there has to be that examination of myself to see whether I am living in obedience with God. And you have to with someone else. If someone comes to me, if a student comes to me for counsel about things where God or somebody in a church does uh, about God closing doors, that's the first question. Are you currently living in obedience with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you're not, that's the number one prayer requirement or that's the number one requirement of your Christian walk. And most of us, if we've walked with the Lord for a number of years, know whether we're living in obedience or whether we're not. If not, ask God. God has lost no capacity to convict of sin whatsoever. And what I have learned is that walking in obedience is not just the avoidance of sin, although that is important, of sinful activities. But it means incorporating God in every part of our life. That means spending time with him in the word, time with him in prayer. None of us have maxed out. The Apostle Paul will write in Philippians that he had not arrived, that he pressed on for the upward call. We do as well. But in the same way, most of us know whether we are walking in obedience or not. A lot of times, if we're not, this is what God will use to bring us, to jolt us from our situation and back to Him. And so, just to begin with, the Apostle Paul was walking in obedience to God when God told him no. Second thing on the checklist, the Apostle Paul walked by faith. The Apostle Paul walked by faith. This sounds so childlike simple. But we are supposed to approach God a lot of times in that childlike simplicity. It's interesting that we claim that we have faith in God. That our sins are forgiven. That our eternity is secure in Jesus. And yet we really have a hard time believing that God will take care of the temporary. That God will take care and meet our needs or, and provide for us. We get stretched a lot of times. I personally think we're going for a bad, bad time economically coming up. I think the United States is living in rebellion before the Lord as a whole, and I don't, I don't expect good things per se. If I'm wrong, then praise God, I'll be thrilled we may get a lot of opportunities to live by faith, which stretches us. We live by faith kind of in our own definition, the own parameters. When you're on the road to Troas, your faith will be stretched because you really would not have any kind of answer of how long is this going to be. I've had people, when they read the road chapter in the Cup and the Glory, I've had the the privilege of interacting with a lot of different people who've read different things and there's some people who've been on this road to Troas where all of a sudden just uh, just started closing down things. And I've had people just cry either when I talk to them or in their emails. And part of this is because they they understand in a sense where they are. They understand a little bit more about what God is doing. But what they have had to do is to walk by faith. And we do that for a day or so or a week or a month, a year, two years, three years. I always tell people, we do in prayer class anyway at the Master Seminary, the class that I teach, that we are not as strong as we think that we are spiritually. And we think that we have faith until we're put in a situation where we have to exercise faith. And then it shows a lot of times it's not as strong as we think that it is. I suggest very simply but very profoundly, Paul was walking in obedience to God. He was walking by faith. The third one is that Paul kept walking even after God told him no. Paul kept walking even after God told him no. There will be a lot of people disappointed with Jesus. There are a lot of people in the gospel. We we mentioned John 6 earlier, that there were a lot of people who were not walking with Jesus any longer. So in John 6, you'll have episodes of this, and you'll run into people. I've talked to different people from time to time. who, They prayed about something, and it didn't turn out the way that they thought it was, that they thought that it should go. And accordingly, they have, they're no longer walking with God. At least the apostle Paul on this, he did not abandon the course. He did not turn back. Had no explanation at this point, but he kept walking. And if you're on the road to Troas, I mean, Peter, bless his heart, at the end of John 6, he got this one right when Jesus says, you do not want to leave also, do you? And Peter says, where can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And so we don't have a plan B with this. If you're on the road to Troas, your only option is either to walk with God by faith or to give up. And nowhere in Scripture are you told to give up. Nowhere are we counselled to do this. And so they kept walking, and they had no idea where they were going. They kept walking. They had no idea how long they would keep doing this. Everything they tried to do in reference to ministry and everything they tried to do I mean, if I were the Apostle Paul, I would be somewhat perplexed, wouldn't you? I mean, there's no churches being strengthened. There are no members being added daily. As far as we know, there was no visible fruit during this segment, however many months that it was, until they got the vision of Troas to come over here and help us, then off to Philippi that they went. And yet this is part of walking in obedience and walking by faith with God even after God told them no. I love this passage because a no from God, if you are walking in obedience and you are walking by faith and you're walking even after God tells you no, then a no really is from God. Because look in this passage. This is one of the few ones that has every member of the Trinity named specifically. You don't have many passages in Scripture. You do have some. You don't have many. In Acts 16, you have the Holy Spirit in verse 6, the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7, and God the Father in verse 10. So in a passage that looks like God is not aware and working, you actually have every member of the Trinity named and active and working. And so, a no, if you are doing this, really is from God. He is aware. When you're walking on the road to Troas, it will not tell you where to go, but it will tell you where or not. Sometimes God's will is given to us in the sense of no or not now, or sometimes never. What I did as a baby Christian, I think I have um, grown out of this, I hope so. I'll probably get put to the test. Now to see if it really is the case. I tell people that I quit trying to play God years ago. I don't do a good job with that. In fact, a lot of times I had students come out and they would ask me what did they think God was going to do in their life, and I would say I have no idea because I haven't figured out what God's going to do in my life, and I generally don't branch out uh, otherwise with this. And but I, I really did quit trying to play God in the sense because he's the one who puts people where he wants them. He's the one who opens doors and closes doors that nobody else can open. And so if you're going to do this and you are walking in obedience to the Lord and you're walking by faith, it may take a while. It will stretch you. I've had people, again, email me years upon years upon years And when they read the road chapter in Acts 16, their circumstances didn't change. Their perception of their circumstances changed. God is not absent. He is present. He is present because the word of God tells us he's present. He's not present because we get goosebumps. He's present because God's word tells us such. And so on this checklist, walking in obedience, walking by faith, walking after God tells him no, Understanding that God is actively at work with us. Now let me see how to word this fifth one. And this is from the text. You'll have to go back to get the different words here. But the goal, on the fifth one, the goal must be to follow Jesus. Not to go to Asia in verse 6. Or Bithynia. Bithynia. In verse 7. Now, most of us, <clears throat> I don't know, unless you've got a flight or something like that, or a trip planned, most of you are probably not planning to go to Asia today. I'm not. I've been to Asia, different parts of it. Or Bithynia. And so you figure, well, I'm off the hook on that. But the goal must be with us not to go to Asia or Bithynia, or let's put it this way. If Paul had his heart's desire to go to minister in Bithynia, and God told him no, then Paul would be very, very discouraged. But if his goal is to follow Jesus, then that means that he'll walk on the road to Troas, if that's where God wants him to go. And so the goal must be not to get married, but to follow Jesus. The goal must be not to go to this particular place, but to follow Jesus. The goal must be not this particular job, but to follow Jesus. Jesus. Now it doesn't mean if you follow Jesus that you won't get married, that you won't have a job, that you won't go into different ministries. But what it does mean is that you can only have one supreme goal, and that must be to follow Jesus. Let me tell you how I got convicted out of this fifth this fifth point. Uh, we had uh, when we were in when our twins uh, died in Washington D.C. We were up there. Betsy's folks had come from North Carolina to visit the grandchildren, visit their daughter, the grandchildren, and I was kind of thrown in as part, as usually son-in-laws are, are done. Definitely with Brenda's folks, they could identify with this. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Um, our children were pretty small at the time. And there was a panda bear at the Washington Zoo. And we got to see the panda bear. And so shortly after that, and I forget the exact connection. I think it might have been on the same day. Did, was it the same day? Somewhere s- briefly after that. Now, how old was Lauren at the time, Ben? She was four years old at the time, and Ben would be two. So Lauren was old enough to understand death just this is our first kind of taste of what it was like when somebody died. And so the panda bear at the Washington Zoo, either that same day or that same week or just shortly thereafter, died as well. It had nothing to do with our trip. It was just the timing that was it was just the timing with us. And so Lauren being a four-year-old having a little four-year-old head sticking out of the covers. Lauren would say, Daddy, do you think God would let the twins play with the panda bear in heaven? And I said, yes, sweetie, I sure do. I can see that. And some of you, you can work out your theology about the salvation of panda bears, and you do so with fear and trembling. But here's a four-year-old girl who understood in a childlike way that she knew the twins were with God. She wanted to know if the twins were happy and the panda bear could be played with. I and mean, I am quite convinced there are animals in heaven. I am quite convinced of this. I'm not talking about necessarily the souls of the animals per se. I'm talking about the new heavens and the new earth, the same one who created them. And Genesis 1 and 2 has not lost the recipe. I would not be a bit surprised to see, but we'll see. I know there are horses, but we'll move on with this. And so we would have this conversation many, many times. And it would always be this, twins, panda bear, heaven. And it would always end this way. Do you ever think we'll get a puppy? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, just on the way out, just let me put this thought (laughs) in your brain. Twins, panda bear, heaven, puppy. Dozens, dozens, and dozens of times over the months ahead. For a couple of years, we did this. So after we ended up, again, I lived in the Raleigh area and taught in the Washington, D.C. area. But I ended up teaching at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, primarily with a college there. And so after I ended up signing a contract to go there, we prayed about getting a puppy for Lauren, And if we had gone through so much stuff that you kind of get to the point, I didn't want her to fall in love with something and have another heartbreak. You kind of get to the point where you're just kind of scared of, of life in general. And my prayer was, Lord, I know there are more important matters to pray about. But I pray that you'll give us the dog that you would have us have. And by the way, we are told about pray about all things. And that's part of the all things that we prayed about. Now, I had planned a father-daughter trip, and I was a little bit gun-shy because the last, as I recall, one of my, uh, a little bit later on, I did a father-son trip with our son, Ben, and we were in a canoe on the Neuse River in Raleigh, and Ben had never been in a canoe before, and he was in the canoe for about 10 seconds, and he stood up, (laughs) and I could, I just got the B on my lips to say, Ben, don't stand up. And before I got the word Ben out of my mouth, we were turned over upside down in the water, millions of bubbles, and this light above. <laughs> and we we finally came back up. And we ro- it was cold, and we rode for two shivering hours, floated down this halfways turtled canoe, and he would sit on the front of the canoe and go, whoa, periodically like that, (laughs) lived in terror as we went down. And I thought he was going to stand up again. A few times he started to stand up. And it was a fun time for all (laughs) with that. And that was one that was just a dud. And so uh, I planned this father-daughter deal with Lauren. I got on with Southeastern, prayed about getting. We ended up getting a Shetland sheepdog, Sheltie is what they're called. Um, and it was uh, about an hour and a half, two hours away from where we lived, and we went out, and it was raining just like, oh, get out. It's just raining (laughs) terribly. And I don't know if you've ever seen Shelties when they're wet. They look like uh, pole and spaghetti. They're about a third of the size. And we rode out there, and she thought we were getting a present for Betsy. So we pulled up to this place. And I saw those wet shelters, I thought, this is not a good idea at all. And, um, but Lauren's in the front seat with me, and I said, do you want to go in when I go in, or do you want to stay? And she says, I want to go with you, Daddy. She was just at the end of first grade. Is that right, end of first grade now? So I said, all right, well, why, while we're here, why don't you pick out your puppy? And that look, I mean, that is one of my, that's probably my top, Favorite moment with Lauren out of many, many favorite moments that we've had. That look of just this expectant joy that's just kind of finally, after all these years, (laughs) it's taken him a while to catch my (laughs) dress, but I get a puppy. And, I mean, it's locked in my mind that look with that. So there are about 20 of them yipping in the kennel. We opened the door, one came out, the other 19, she picked him up, he licked her on the nose, and that was the dog that we got. And she said, let's name him Fluffy, Daddy, on the way home. I wasn't going to stand out there, oh, Fluffy. I'm <laughs> I <was laughs> I mean, I got her the puppy, but I was going to go the, the Fluffy route. And so I said, let's name, let's name him Cowboy. And so... The name stuck. So Cowboy was a good name for Sheltie. They would hurt up anything. He would hurt up anything. Students at Southeastern, he thought he would do it. He would walk behind the students, have them in line. And so Lauren just, she had her puppy. Betsy and I looked out the window and watched him play and stuff. Such a, Such a delight. And that lasted about two or three days. And then it was over. And we had this dog. And I never really wanted a dog to begin with. So I'm, <laughs> I'm reading the newspaper. It's during the summertime in North Carolina. And I think, my foot is sweating. And I looked down there, and that dog had cocked his leg and was wetting my foot. And I picked him up by his throat and held him and said, who is this who desires to live a long life? And see long days, let him refrain from evil and do what is right and <laughs> set him down. And so a few more weeks went by, and he came to me in his own puppy dog way and said, Whither thou goest, I will go. Your home shall be my home. Your people shall be my people. I will be your dog. And you will be my person. <laughs> and so Cowboy and I became good, good friends. In fact, he is, he is one of the top five friends I have ever had in my life. And we didn't pray together, and there were some doggy things he did that I do not understand. <laughs> but he was, um, we were with each other about 18 hours a day. One of my, he was, they were a very, very intelligent breed. One of my favorite things with cowboy—I um, could say cowboy. You wanna go for a ride? Woof. So go tell Betsy. He would go find Betsy wherever she was in the house, and I'd hear him. He'd go woof. She'd say, "You going for a ride?" He said, "Okay, have fun." Back down, he would come. How many dogs can you do that? How many dogs can you say, "Go tell so and so you're going for a ride?" Just again, just very loyal. He would go on hunger strikes when I'd go teach overseas. He wouldn't eat. He would wait until, and he had this accuracy. I would walk down the steps. If I could take him, he knew I could take him. He'd be looking at me. And if I was going somewhere I couldn't take him, I don't know how he knew this. He'd just be lying there, and I'd step over him. But there was one one thing. We had um, in, on an Easter, Betsy's folks had given him a honey-baked ham bone. Now, you all have those here, right? They have honey-baked ham? Yeah. yeah. When I'm in L.A., I always have to ask on different things. And, um, I honey-baked ham bone. Betsy's folks gave him one uh, for Easter, and he, we let him enjoy that. And he enjoyed it way too much. He ate way, way too much. His stomach gave evidence he ate way too much. And so we decided next year around, the honey ham bone, I was going to put the, the brakes on this. So, uh, oh, by the way, Mike and Cowboy uh, met, and Mike came out to visit L.A., and Cowboy was quite affectionate towards Mike, as I recall, and they bonded, and um, it was shortly after that, the Cowboy died. <laughs> but that, but you can ask Mike. You can ask Mike about that. But back to the Honey-Baked Hound. Yeah, I'm going with this. So the second year when you got the Honey-Baked Hound I was going to do it for ten minutes. So I had a, a Ziploc bag. We had a screened-in porch, and had a in the backyard. And it doesn't get much better than this than dogs for dogs. A honey-bait ham bone with meat is still on it. A little, both sides had meat on it. No other dogs around. It's in the springtime, so it's not real hot yet. Brown grass, brown flowers, brown sky. As dogs are colorblind. With but I watched him I just enjoyed it and he's down there and he's I mean sometimes the dogs will eat he would eat other stuff that I don't even think he tasted because he ate it so quickly you throw him something but he, he savored this I mean, he would chew it and he'd look up and just kind of oh this is so good this is so good and so I, I after uh, I clocked him after 10 minutes he was down there I said cowboy he looked up. It's the time to come in. He stood up on all fours. I said, grab your bone. He grabbed his bone. Up the steps, he came. And so I thought, I had a Ziploc bag. I thought I was going to have to pry this thing out of his mouth. Some of you have seen, or either in person or on the nature shows, the snapping turtles, when they grabbed hold of the boat oars or something, he left them up. I had every indication I was going to have to pick him up, let go of this, let go of this. And so I had the zip lock back. I said, cowboy, I said, drop it. And he goes up to the bag and goes, he drops it in the back. <laughs> yeah. I, I close it up. I walk to the refrigerator. And, he's, and I don't think anybody believed this except my wife saw this and can verify this took place. He didn't stare me down. He didn't say, that's my bone. He gave it to me. I asked him, I had a lady, that was telling this, I had a lady come up and said, I trained my dog to do this. And I thought later on and said, I never did. I had never asked him to do this before. And so it was during this time that the Coffin of Glory was written years and years ago. And on, All the glory books were written years ago, and they sat on my shelf for a long, long time in my office. I'd give them to people. The internet was just coming out, and I, my price would always be, I charge you prayer. Pray for me and then pass it on to somebody you think who needs it. And it ended up in about 70 countries before it ever got published. But it was somewhere around this time frame that the last publisher who, who turned it down, uh... Talked to me on the phone for about 15 minutes and just ridiculed me and the book. Said, there's way, way too much Bible in here. He said, we want funny stories. We want little light sayings. He said, you'll be lucky if you ever find 500 people to read this book. And I was out running in uh, a neighborhood in Wake Forest. And I was thinking about Cowboy dropping the bone in the bag. And God brought to strong conviction that my dog trusted me more than I trusted God. Because the goal is not to get a book published, but to follow Jesus. Whenever I get, when things get out of control, my phrase is bone in the bag if the bone in the bag doesn't mean that you'll never ever get it back cowboy got his back but what you're doing with the bone in the bag is that you're making this volitional drop into the hands of god to do with it as he sees fit i placed the books on the altar before god if i and I was out running in this neighborhood if i was out in the woods i would have fallen on my face in repentance i didn't want to fall down in the neighborhood and have somebody look out the window and say this guy's got a heart attack or something and call them <laughs> and say no I'm just on the road to Troll House and figure out something and probably would have made the papers but I was under strong strong conviction with us and my life changed that day and so I placed the books on the altar before God if you want the book published then you publish the books if you don't then that's yours to do as you see fit not that he needs my permission on anything see the goal must not be to go to Asia or Bithynia but to follow Jesus we have had by God's grace there have been so many things that have happened with the books and I think a lot of that was a turning point that day at the shepherds conference at Grace Community Church it was one of the books that was given to the pastors it was given to 3,500 pastors there and I looked out the window from where my office was and just looked at. here is a grace gift of God this is not a bragamony. This is just a way to go God type thing. I get a lot of usage out of bone in the bag. I told a class at Southeastern about it when it happened um, at a night class. The bone in the bag are those things that it's not sinful activities. The bone in the bag can be, I mean, there were some people in the class who just very much wanted to have kids, and year after year after year it didn't happen. And there were other things financially and other just there are always these heartaches and stuff. And it was a very powerful prayer at the end of class when we did the bone in the bag. The bone in the bag was basically taking your hurts and dropping them in God's hands. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have a book published and go out all over the place. When Cowboy dropped the bone in the bag, I put it in the refrigerator out of sight. He had no idea what I was going to do with it. he'd ever see it again. What amazed me about Cowboy was that he wagged his tail the whole time. I put the bone in the refrigerator, and then he got up on on his back legs and put his paws on me. Dogs can't really hug. But it was it was just this appreciativeness of thank you for this bone. this thank you. And uh, again, I was under strong, strong conviction. So the last thing, walking in obedience, walking by faith, walking with God still after God tells you no, understanding that a no, if you're doing that, really is from God. And the fifth one, the goal must be not to go to Asia or Bithynia, but to follow Jesus. And finally, with that being said, with all the above in place, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And in in the Hebrew, it says, literally, he will make your path straight. That's a wonderful promise of God.